jongen om een andere vrouw te leren kennen, om haar op verrukkelijke wijze te bedriegen, haar attenties te bewijzen waarop alleen jij recht hebt. Ontnaam je me niet alle vrolijkheid, stempelde mij tot een onzeker kind, liefde met kinderen. En mocht ik mezelf toestaan, zo te veranderen. Omdat ik door jou zo arm ben geworden, kon ik niet meer te besluiten om je te ontdekken. Spande alle kracht in mijn leven aan mezelf te Langzamerhand verleerde ik het om jou te helpen. Vergeten kan ik je nooit, maar ik kan mijn leven in mijn toe brengen om jou te helpen. dat men respect voor mij heeft. Die is misschien te nadrukkelijk, maar omdat hij me gegeven is, moet ik er rekening mee houden. En voorts is er iets in mij dat zich door de onopmerkzaamheid van het geluk gelukkig voelt, maakt. Jou te vermsmaden, mooiste, doet mij de handen wouwen en God om vergiffenis vragen. Maar al sterf ik van verlangen naar je, ik wil het besef niet hebben afhankelijk van je te zijn. Ik kan niemand vertrouwen dan mezelf, want alleen ik kan mezelf in de hand houden. En zo moet ik me schikken. 64. En dan... Het. Gelijk als gij... Asfalt. Zon. En maan. Vervolgens. En dan... ochtends Staan. Maar... Vervolgens...
are too far gone. We got to let the girls know what they got to do for us. It's not got to be a drag. Man, a man can't do nothing no more. <laughs> it's really a drag. You got to do something. Can I tell them? Look at Girl, let me tell you what you got to do. TC be so mellow.
Chapter 8 Gentlemen, I didn't expect to see any of you, the prince began. I've been unwell up till today, and I entrusted your case, he was speaking to Antip Burdovsky, to Gavrila Ardalionovich Ivulgin, at least a month ago, as I informed you at that time. However, I'm not trying to avoid a personal explanation, though you will agree that now is hardly... I suggest we go to another room, if this won't take long... My friends are here at the moment, and believe me, friends, the more the merrier. But look here, sir, Lebedev's nephew interrupted suddenly in a highly sententious tone, though without raising his voice unduly. May we point out in turn that you could have shown us more consideration than to keep us waiting in your servant's hall for two hours? And of course, and I, that's princely behavior for you, and this, you must be a general. And I'm not your servant. And I... I... Antip Burdovsky suddenly began mumbling in acute agitation. His lips trembled, and there was an intensely aggrieved quaver in his voice as the spittle flew from his mouth. It was as if he had burst or erupted, but he was in so much of a hurry all of a sudden that after the tenth word it was impossible to understand what he was saying. 
It was princely behavior, Hippolyte shouted in a shrill, cracked voice. If it had happened to me, growled the boxer, I mean, if I had been directly involved as a man of honor in Berdovsky's place, I'd... Gentlemen, I only heard of your presence a minute ago, really, the prince repeated again. We're not afraid of your friends, prince, whoever they may be, because we are within our rights, declared Lebedev's nephew once more. But what right did you have, pray? Ippolit squeaked again, by now greatly wrought up, to submit Burdovsky's case to the judgment of your friends. Maybe we don't want a court of your friends. It's very obvious what that would lead to. But if you don't want to talk here, Mr. Burdovsky, the prince managed to get in a word at length, considerably taken aback by this beginning. As I say, let's go to another room at once. I repeat, I only heard about you all just this minute. But you have no right, no right, no right, your friends, so... Burdovsky suddenly started babbling again, looking wildly and apprehensively about him, increasingly impassioned as his shyness and suspicion grew. You have no right. Having got this out, he halted abruptly as if cut short, silently fixing his myopic, bulging, bloodshot eyes on the prince. He stared questioningly at him his whole body hunched forward. This time the prince was so surprised that he lapsed into silence himself and looked at him wide-eyed in return, without saying a word. Lev Nikolaevich, called out Lizaveta Prokofievna all of a sudden, read this at once, this very minute. It's directly concerned with your business. She hastily held out to him a certain weekly humorous paper and pointed out an article. While the visitors were coming in, Lebedev had sidled up to Lizaveta Prokofievna, with whom he was trying to ingratiate himself, wordlessly pulled this paper out of his pocket and placed it before her eyes, indicating a marked passage. What Lizaveta Prokofievna had managed to read had shaken and upset her considerably. Perhaps better not to read it aloud, faltered the prince, highly embarrassed. I could read it by myself, later on. He had barely had time to touch it before Lizaveta Prokofievna impatiently snatched the paper from his hand and turned to Kolya. In that case, you'd better read it. Read it now, out loud, so everybody can hear. Lizaveta Prokofievna was an ardent and impulsive lady, so that sometimes, with barely a thought, she weighed anchor all of a sudden and put out to sea regardless of the weather. General Yepanchin stirred uneasily. But while they all stopped involuntarily in that first moment and waited in bafflement, Kolya unfolded the paper and began reading aloud from the place Lebedev sprang over to indicate. Proletarians and Scions of Nobility An episode of daylight and everyday robbery Progress, reform, justice Strange things take place in our so-called holy Russia, in our age of reforms and private enterprise, an age of national movements and hundreds of millions exported annually, an age of encouragement of industry and paralysis of working human hands, and so on and so forth. The list is endless, gentlemen. So let us to business. A strange incident occurred to a sprig of our defunct landed gentry, de profundis, one of those sprigs, however, whose grandfathers lost all their money at the roulette wheel, whose fathers were compelled to serve as cadets and junior officers in the army, and died, as a rule, while being tried for some innocent mistake in the calculation of public monies, and whose children, like the hero of our tale, either grow up to be idiots, or get involved in criminal activity, of which, incidentally, they are acquitted by our juries, supposedly for their edification and reform. Or, at length, they get involved in one of those incidents which astound the public and sully these already disgraceful times of ours. During the winter, about six months ago, our noble scion, wearing gaiters, foreign fashion, and shivering in his unlined bit of cloak, returned to Russia from Switzerland, where he had been treated for idiocy. It must be admitted he was fortunate at that, because as well as that interesting malady he was treated for in Switzerland, now can anyone be treated for idiocy? 
just imagine it. He could well prove the truth of the Russian saying, some folk have all the luck. Judge for yourselves. Left a babe in arms on the death of his father, who, they say, was a lieutenant who died while on trial for the sudden disappearance of the company funds during a game of cards, and possibly also for the award of an excessive number of strokes of the birch to one under his command. You recall the days of old, gentlemen? Our baron was brought up thanks to the charity of a certain very rich Russian landowner. This landowner, let us call him P., was the owner, in that former golden age, of four thousand serf souls. Serf souls. Do you understand an expression like that, gentlemen? I don't. I will have to look in a dictionary. The legend is fresh, but hard to credit and was seemingly one of those Russian idlers and parasites who spend all their lazy lives abroad, at the spas in summer, and in winter at the Paris Chateau de Fleurs, where they have left vast sums in their time. It could be said with certainty that at least one-third of the rent paid during the serf-owning period went into the pockets of the proprietor of the Chateau de Fleurs, lucky fellow that he was. However that may be, the happy-go-lucky P brought up our nobleman's orphaned child like a prince, engaged tutors and governesses for him, pretty ones, no doubt, whom, incidentally, he brought over from Paris himself. But this last scion of a noble line was an idiot. The Chateau de Fleur governesses couldn't help, and, till he was twenty, their young charge hadn't learned to speak any language, including Russian. This last was excusable, however, at length, a fantastic notion came into P's feudal head that the idiot might be taught sense in Switzerland. It was a logical fantasy at that. A parasite and propertied man would naturally suppose he could buy even intelligence for money in the marketplace, particularly in Switzerland. Five years passed while he was treated by some celebrated professor in Switzerland, and thousands were spent on it. The idiot, it goes without saying did not become intelligent. But they say he did grow to resemble a human being, nevertheless. Let's not argue the point. Then P ups and dies suddenly. There was no will, of course. His affairs were in a mess, as usual, and there were crowds of greedy heirs who couldn't have cared less about any last science of the line being treated for idiocy out of charity in Switzerland. The sad scion, idiot though he was, tried to cheat his professor, and, so they say, managed to get treatment for two years free of charge by concealing the death of his benefactor. But the professor was no mean charlatan himself. Alarmed at last by his patient's lack of money, and still more at the appetite of this twenty-five-year-old parasite, he dressed him in his old gaiters, gave him his worn-out old cloak, and sent him off at his own expense, third class, nach Russland, to get rid of him. It seemed that fortune had turned her back on our hero. Not a bit of it, gentlemen. Fortune, which wipes out whole provinces with famine, pours out all her gifts at once upon this little aristocrat. Like Kreloff's cloud, which passed over the parched fields and discharged itself over the ocean. At the very moment he turned up in Petersburg from Switzerland, a relative of his mother's, who was of the merchant class herself, of course, dies in Moscow. A childless old soul, merchant, bearded old believer, who leaves a few million in his will, incontestable, cool, hard cash. Would it have been you and I, dear reader? All to our sprig. All this to our baron, who had been treated for idiocy in Switzerland. Well now, the boot was on the other foot. Suddenly a whole crowd of friends and acquaintances gathered round our gaitered baron, who was throwing himself at a certain celebrated beauty, a kept woman. Even relatives turned up, and a whole clutch of noble ladies besides, desperate for holy matrimony. And what could be better? An aristocrat, a millionaire, an idiot. All qualities at once, not something you can find with a lantern in daylight or have made to order. This... I don't understand this at all, cried General Yepanchin at the very pitch of indignation. Do stop, Kolya, cried the prince, pleading with his eyes. Exclamations came from all sides. Read on, read on, whatever you do, cut in Lizaveta Prokofievna. 
obviously restraining herself with an immense effort. Prince, if the reading stops, we shall quarrel. There was nothing for it. Kolya, flushed and excited, went on reading in an agitated voice. But, while our new-fledged millionaire was in seventh heaven, so to speak, something altogether unlooked for occurred. One fine morning a visitor came to see him, composed and stern of countenance, soberly and elegantly dressed, courteously dignified and measured of speech, and with an obvious leaning towards progressive views. He briefly explained the reason for his visit. He was a well-known lawyer, and he had been instructed by a certain young man to act in his interest. This young man was none other than the son of the late P, though he used a different name. The lascivious P had, in his youth, seduced a girl who was poor but honest, one of his house serfs, who had been brought up European fashion. Doubtless he was taking advantage of one of the seigneurial rights he enjoyed under the old serf system. Noticing the inevitable and imminent consequence of this liaison, he hurriedly gave her in marriage to a man of excellent character who worked in the civil service and who had long been in love with the girl. To begin with, he helped the newlyweds, but very soon the husband's upright character saw to it that his assistance was declined. Time passed, and little by little, P managed to forget the girl and the son she had borne him, and later, as we know, he died without settling his affairs. His son, meanwhile, born in lawful wedlock, grew up under another name, having been adopted by his mother's upright husband. The latter nevertheless died in due season, and the son was left to fend for himself in one of our remote provinces with an ailing mother who had lost the use of her legs. He himself earned a living in the capital by honest toil every day, giving lessons in merchants' houses, and so kept himself first at school, then later on while he was attending external university lectures, which he hoped would be useful to him in his subsequent career. Still, how much can you earn from a Russian merchant for lessons at ten kopecks an hour? especially with an ailing, crippled mother whose eventual death in her remote province barely lightened his load. The question is now, how should our noble sprig have decided in all fairness to act? Of course, dear reader, you think he told himself, all my life I have made use of P's gifts. On my education, my governesses, tens of thousands went to Switzerland on my treatment for idiocy, and here I am now with millions at my disposal, while the noble character of P's son, in no way to blame for the actions of his light-minded father, who forgot about him, is being worn down giving lessons. Everything that was spent on me should by rights have gone to him. These huge sums spent on me are not really mine. It was simply a blind error of fortune. They should have gone to P's son. They should have been employed to his benefit, not mine, as happened through the fantastic whim of the light-minded and forgetful P. If I were truly noble, considerate, and just, I ought to give his son half my inheritance. But, as I am first and foremost a prudent man, and am well aware that this matter lies outside the law, I shall not give him half my millions. But it would at any rate be too mean and shameful on my part— the noble scion forgot that it wouldn't be prudent either. If I do not return to P's son the tens of thousands spent by P on my idiocy, that would only be right and fair. What would have become of me if P had not brought me up and had taken care of his son instead of me? But no, gentlemen, our noble scions don't think in that way. Despite the pleading of the young man's lawyer, who had undertaken almost against his will to act for him solely from motives of friendship, no matter how he pointed out the obligations of honor, generosity, justice, and even self-interest, the Swiss ward remained unswayed. And what of it? All that would be nothing. But what was really unforgivable, and could not be excused by any interesting illness, was that this millionaire, scarcely emerged from his professor's gaiters, could not grasp that the noble disposition of the young man, killing himself, giving lessons, was not begging for assistance or asking for alms. He was asking for his rights, and for what was due to him, outside the laws it might be. Not even asking, indeed. His friends were merely interceding on his behalf.
With a lordly air and reveling in his newly acquired power to grind people's faces in the dirt with impunity because of his millions, our sprig takes out a fifty-ruble note and sends it to the young man as a form of arrogant charity. You don't believe me, gentlemen? You are outraged? You are affronted? You are racked by cries of indignation? But nevertheless, that is what he did. Naturally, the money was returned to him at once, hurled back in his face, so to speak. How, then, is this matter to be settled? It isn't a legal matter. Public opinion is all that remains. We therefore place this story before the public, vouching for its accuracy. We learn that one of our most celebrated humorists has concocted an admirable epigram on the subject, which deserves a place in metropolitan sketches of manners, let alone provincial. For five long years young Yova played, secure in Schneider's cloak, and passed the time so blithe and gay with childish game and joke. Then he came home in gaiters tight, enormous wealth to find, and praised to heaven day and night while robbing students blind. When Colia had finished, he quickly handed the paper to the prince and, without saying a word, rushed off and hid in a corner, covering his face with his hands. He felt intolerably ashamed, and his childish sensitivity, not yet inured to filth, was outraged, perhaps even excessively so. He felt that something extraordinary had happened to cast a blight over everything, and that he was partially the cause of it, by the very fact of having read it aloud. But it appeared that everyone had sensed something of the kind as well. The girls felt very awkward and ashamed. Lizaveta Prokofievna was keeping her intense anger in check, as well as perhaps bitterly regretting her involvement in the affair. For the moment she said nothing. The prince was experiencing what very shy people often do in like circumstances. He was so ashamed at the conduct of other people, so ashamed for his visitors, that initially he was afraid even to look at them. Ptitsin, Varya, Ganya, even Lebedev, all of them looked rather embarrassed. The strangest of all, Ippolite and Pavlishev's son were also apparently taken aback. Lebedev's nephew was also clearly displeased. Only the boxer sat perfectly at ease, gravely twirling his moustaches. His eyes were lowered, but not from embarrassment. On the contrary, out of dignified modesty, it seemed, and only too obvious triumph. He gave every sign of enjoying the article very much indeed. This is beyond everything, General Yepanchin growled under his breath. Fifty lackeys must have put their heads together to compose that. Permit me to inquire, dear sir, how you can make such insulting suppositions, Hippolyte demanded, all a tremble. This, this, this for a man of honor. You must agree, General, if a man of honor, it's nothing less than an insult growled the boxer, also suddenly rousing himself for some reason, twirling his mustaches and twitching his shoulders and body. In the first place, I'm not your dear sir, and secondly, I have no intention of offering you any explanations, came General Yepanchin's brusque reply. By now, in a thoroughly bad temper, he rose and, without a word, walked to the exit from the veranda, where he stood with his back to the company, highly annoyed at Lisa Prokofievna, who had no thoughts of quitting her seat even now. Gentlemen, gentlemen, do let me say something at least, cried the prince in despairing agitation, and please let us talk so that we understand one another. I don't care about the article, gentlemen, let it go. But it's all untrue, you know, what's been printed. I'm saying that because you know it yourselves. It's shameful, really so I would be truly surprised if any one of you had written it. Up to this minute, I didn't know anything about the article, declared Hippolyte. I don't approve of it. Although I knew it had been written, added Lebedev's nephew, I also would not have advised its publication because it's premature. I knew, but I have the right. I muttered Pavlishev's son. What? You wrote all that yourself? asked the prince with a searching look at Burdovsky.
I simply don't believe it. One might, however, refuse to recognize your right to ask such questions, interposed Lebedev's nephew. I was only surprised that Mr. Budovsky managed to... But I mean to say that if you've already put the matter before the public, why did you get so annoyed just now when I began talking about it in front of my friends? At last and about time, murmured Lizaveta Prokofievna indignantly. And, Prince, you are pleased to forget... Lebedev couldn't resist saying as he squeezed through between the chairs, almost in a fever. You are pleased to forget, sir, that it is only your goodwill and unexampled kindness of heart which made you receive them and hear them out, which they had no right to demand, especially since you had already entrusted the matter to Gavrila Ardolyonovich, and that too you did because of your excessive kindliness— and that now, most illustrious prince, amid your chosen friends, you cannot sacrifice their company for the sake of these gentlemen, sir, and could see all these gentlemen off the veranda, sir, so to speak, so that I, as master of the house, with the greatest of pleasure, sir, quite right, too, rumbled General Evilgen suddenly from the back of the room. Enough, Lebedev, that's enough now, began the prince, but an explosion of indignation drowned his words. No, I'm sorry, prince, I'm sorry. Now is certainly not enough. Lebedev's nephew virtually shouted them all down. Now this business has to be set out clearly and firmly, since people obviously don't understand it. Now legal quibbles have been brought in, and on that basis comes a threat to throw us off the veranda. Surely, prince... You don't take us for such fools that we don't realize that our case is outside the law, and if it is dealt with legalistically, we haven't the right to demand a single ruble from you. But what we certainly do realize is that if the letter of the law does not apply here, there is such a thing as human natural right, the law of reason, and the voice of conscience. No matter if this law of ours is not written down in some rotten human code of laws, a decent and honest man, a right-thinking man, in other words, is bound to remain a decent and honest man even when it isn't written down in codes of law. That is the reason we came here. Not afraid we might be thrown off the veranda, as you threatened just now, because we do not ask, we demand. And as for the impropriety of our visit at such a late hour... Although we did not arrive late, it was you who kept us waiting in the servants' hall. That, I say, is why we came without fear. Because we supposed you to be a right-thinking man, a man of honor and conscience. Yes, it's true, we didn't come cap in hand. We haven't come as poor relations or parasites, but with our heads held high, like free men, without any intention of pleading, but with a free and proud demand. You hear not to beg. To demand. Make careful note of that. We put a question to you directly, and with dignity. Do you consider yourself in the right in the case of Burdovsky or not? Do you admit that you were Pavlishev's beneficiary, even saved from death by him? If you do, as you must, do you, after receiving millions, intend to consider that it squares with your conscience to recompense the son of Pavlishev in his need, even if he does bear the name of Burdovsky? Yes or no? If yes, that is, in other words, if you have what you call in your language honor and conscience, and what we designate more precisely common sense, then give us satisfaction and the matter is closed. Satisfaction without conditions and without gratitude from our side, don't expect that, because you're not doing it for our sake, but for the sake of justice. If you don't intend to give us satisfaction, however, that is, if your answer is no, then we will leave at once, and the matter is at an end. We will say this to your face, in front of all your witnesses, that you are a man of coarse mind and undeveloped sensibility, that henceforth you have no right and will not dare to call yourself a man of honor and conscience. You wish to purchase that right too cheaply. That is all. I have put the question. Turn us out if you dare. You can do that. There are more of you. But remember, we demand, not beg. Demand, not beg. Lebedev's nephew stopped, by now thoroughly impassioned. Demand, 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 not beg, stammered Burdovsky, going lobster red. 
These words of Lebedev's nephew created a certain general stir, a murmur of protest even, though obviously no one of the company was eager to get involved in the business with the possible exception of Lebedev, who was in a positive fever of excitement. It was odd. Lebedev, palpably on the side of the prince, seemed now to feel a certain pleasurable family pride after his nephew's speech. At all events, he glanced round the whole gathering with an air of marked satisfaction. In my opinion, the prince began quite softly, in my opinion, Mr. Dr. Yenko, you are perfectly correct in half of what you've just said. I would even agree with the greater part. I should have been in total agreement with you if you hadn't left something out of your speech. What you omitted, I am in no condition to explain exactly, but for it to be completely fair, something is missing, of course, from what you said. But let us to business, gentlemen. Tell me, 